0: How can we best understand and engage younger generations today? Our guest, Dr. Jean Twang, is professor of psychology at San Diego State University, author of a brand new book called Generations, subtitled The Real Difference Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. She is our, has been our go-to person on generational trends, um, and today we're going to look at particularly uh, the research on Gen Z, what that means for pastors, parents, and others who care about understanding and mentoring the next generation. I'm your host, Scott Ray, and this is Think Biblically, a podcast from Tablet School of Theology at Biola University. Dr. Twang, thank you so much for joining us. We're really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. So tell me, how did you get so interested in this particular you know, academic specialty? What, what why are you so passionate about uh, understanding these generational trends?
1: You know, it all started when I was an undergraduate and I was working on my honors thesis and found that my peers were scoring very differently on a psychological questionnaire than college students had 20 years before that and realized it made sense. Maybe there were some generational differences, um, went and found other people had used the scale and found sure enough, there was a progressive change over time in these traits. And that was in the early nineties. It was right around the time that the media had discovered generation X. And there were a lot of books and articles um, written about um, that generation, which is my own, but so many of them, weren't actually based on data. They were based on stereotypes and myths and maybe anecdotal observations Mm -hmm. here and there. So I was in grad school by then and realizing, well, you know, this is a really interesting area and there's very little actual research on it.
0: Well, uh, as you, as you look throughout the, the generations how, how in, your, in your best understanding, how have approaches to religion and faith shifted through the generations that you're writing about?
1: Well, what we know for sure is that young people in particular are less likely now to affiliate with a religion. They're less likely to attend religious services, um, to say they believe in God, to say that they pray Uh, Most Americans, including young Americans, still do those things, still believe in those things. Uh, But there's been a big growth in the number of young people who are basically purely secular.
0: Okay. Uh, What what do you think accounts for that shift? Uh, Particularly the, you know, the, the, the still having a private faith but not not interested in any identification with a church or religious body or anything like that?
1: Well, the indications of, of private faith have also gone down. So praying or belief in God have also gone down among young people. That, that came later. That came mm-hmm. after the decline in public religion. Um, but yeah, all, all of those have, have gone down. And I think that one major culprit is the growth of individualism. So that's a cultural system that places more emphasis on the self and less on social rules and less on others. So individualism is a key part of the theory that's at the core of this book, which is that technology creates cultural change and it does that directly sometimes, but then it also sometimes does that through the mechanism of increasing individualism and Almost by definition, religion and individualism are like oil and water. Religion says there's something bigger than your, than yourself. Mm-hmm. There's certain rules you need to follow. And we're going to explore this in fellowship with others. Individualism says do your own thing. Focus on yourself first. And sure, it's great to have friends and maybe family. But... You have to love yourself first. You don't need anyone else to make you happy.
0: All right. So spell out a little bit more how technology has contributed to that shift from more of a collectivist view of the individual within community as opposed to individualism.
1: Well, you know, the traditional theories of generations focused on big events Things like wars, economic cycles, Mm -hmm. you know, they would try to say, well, you know, generations are the way they are because they experience certain events at at different ages. And especially things that happen when people were, say, adolescents and young adults, that's going to be what makes them who they are. But events don't have as much long-term impact on how we live as technology does. I mean, the changes in technology, not just smartphones and social media, Mm -hmm. but things like labor saving devices faster transportation better medical care that's what makes it really different to live now than 200 years ago or 100 years ago or even 20 years ago so given that that's really technology is really at the root of cultural change and that's what makes generations different is that they grow up um in different cultures as time goes on cultures change
0: so the i could i could see where this would be i mean you've You've raised the point already that in, in an individualistic culture, there's less of a sense of, you know, there being things bigger than myself, uh, not not just the community, but transcendent things. Um, but what what kinds of challenges do you think that uh, this more individualistic culture will raise for religious institutions like churches, like Biola University, where I teach, um Especially if you anticipate the, this kind of individualism only increasing in the future.
1: Well, I think if there's, there's both challenges and then I think some opportunities. So I think the opportunity is that even though teens spend a lot less time with each other face-to-face and a lot more time online, needing to be with other people... And having those relationships with others is a human universal. And because of the way these things have shifted, there's a real desire and yearning for connecting with others. So I think that's, that's the opportunity. The challenge is to counter or grapple with The individualism and how it doesn't tend to fit very well with religion um, to figure out if there might be a way to reconcile the two. And I, you know, I think there are some religious organizations that have have managed to do that.
0: It sounds like you think that that's going to be an uphill climb for for religious groups in the future.
1: I think it is, um, but I don't think the situation is at all hopeless, primarily because we need each other, and we need to find meaning in life, and neither one of those things is going to change, and religious organizations can address both those things.
0: So how how in general would you describe the faith of Gen Zers?
1: Well— there are definitely few, fewer um, who are religious than in previous generations. And among those who are religious, um, they, you know, they vary, of course. You know, there are some where their beliefs in their, um, you know, religious home probably doesn't look that different from maybe the way boomers experienced it. But many of their religious homes are going to be different when i say home i'm 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 meaning you know church or Mm -hmm. synagogue or wherever they're wherever they're going um you know it's probably going to be more casual than it used to be so that's one response of religious organizations um to adapt to rising individualism individualism tends to promote things being less formal more casual Mm -hmm. We certainly see that that change in uh, many religious institutions. Um, there's you know more of an emphasis on it being enjoyable. So often there's you know more music, and some of the music may be more modern than in, in past decades. So there's there's these adaptations um, that have happened over time that you know most generations are are responding to, but you know Gen Z finds them. Um, you know, particularly appealing.
0: How, how secular is Gen Z in the way, the way they think about life, their behavior?
1: Well, they are pretty secular, um, but not all of them. I mean, this, this is where we have to acknowledge that when we look at the, the trends over time, we have to acknowledge that there's plenty of variation, you know, within the generation. And that is absolutely true when you look at the the shifts in um, in religion. So, um, you know, one example is if you look at um, teens. So, eighth graders, tenth graders, and twelfth graders is where we have some of the best data in the big national surveys, and we have that um, back to nineteen seventy six. So, you know, let's take the high school seniors, the 12th graders. So they're 17, 18 years old. And, you know, back late 70s, early 80s, about 90% said they ever attended religious services, say, in the last year. And in 2021, it was about 70%. So you notice it's still, it's Mm -hmm. still the majority. You go to religious services sometimes. It's just there's that much bigger proportion. There's three times as many
0: who never go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a significant shift. Now, some, some people suggested in a variety of ways that both millennials and Gen Z would return to religious faith as they got older, had families, got settled, things like that. What does the data show us on that?
1: When they settle down, when they have kids. And that did not turn out to be true. So one of the graphs in the book, um, in Generations, in the Millennials chapter, is um, 26 to 40-year-olds, and how many affiliate with a religion, how many attend religious services. And this is from the General Social Survey, National Representative Survey, that has data going back to 1972. And in that age group, so let's call them prime-age adults, those numbers were pretty constant between 1972 and mm, the late 1990s. So there are about 85% who attended religious services, at least occasionally, and about 90 who affiliated uh, with a religion. And then those start to slide beginning in the mid-90s. And then after about 2002, then they start to really go down. And that's notable because that's around the time that the you see the generational transition from gen x to Mm -hmm. millennials and by the time that group is solidly millennial after 2012 those numbers are much lower so forever attending services you know that had been an 85 percent and then by 2021 uh, was about 63.
0: okay that yeah that's that's helpful because i think as the conventional wisdom was this as people got older and started raising families and get settled they would return to that, uh, but the data says not not so much. Uh, mm-hmm. What what attitudes have you been able to, to discover that Gen Zers have regarding gender and sexuality?
1: Yeah, so I, I dove into that, um, and there's you know there's a couple of, of things that are that are noteworthy. I mean, first. Across all generations, of course, support has grown for same-sex marriage. There's still a generation gap. Um, Gen Z and, and millennials are, are still more likely um, to be in support of same-sex marriage than uh, older generations. But there's been a shift in opinion you know, across, across all generations. There's both a generational and a time period effect. And then we can also look at the number who identify say as lesbian gay or bisexual and that has increased considerably particularly among young adults it hasn't increased quite as much um, among older people but for 18 to 26 year olds that's um gen z these days there's been a pretty big increase over time because um and this This is another large survey. This one, um, it asked about sexual orientation um, only going back to 2014, but that's okay. We can still see a pretty big change. There's a doubling in the percentage of 18 to 26-year-olds who identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual between 2014 and 2021. So just a seven-year period, it doubled.
0: Well, how do you you account for that that doubling so quickly in such a relatively short time period?
1: It's a great question. And we're not exactly sure. Um, There's a number of possible factors. So, you know, greater acceptance being one of them. I mentioned, you know, attitudes around Mm -hmm. same sex marriage and how much those changed and those can, you know, changed a lot over this over this time period. So that's that's certainly part of it. Um, but if it was just acceptance, you would think there'd be more of a shift among older people, and there's not. So there might be a critical mm-hmm. period for acceptance, say in adolescence or young adulthood, and that'd be typical of a lot of things where there's that's where the critical period is for identity and um, viewpoints and, and all kinds of things that happen at that age.
0: And um, yeah, let me take this into the transgender discussion just for a moment. Uh, It seems like there's been, you know, everything that I read has been this this explosion of uh, particularly females among Gen Z uh, identifying as transgender than in previous generations. Does the data that you have reveal anything about why that's taken place, in particular with females?
1: Yeah, so let's let's cover the the data first. So we're so we're on the same page here because um, when I was writing this book, I was reading a lot about um, what you mentioned that there's been this explosion, there's been this huge increase, but I didn't see anybody who had actual data over time on it. So that was one of the the um, Analyses that I, I wanted to do, if I could find the data, just because that's been such a big topic of mm-hmm. discussion and I had just not seen any actual hard numbers. Uh, but I was able to find some that, that same um, big survey that has been done um, that has these questions um, also started to ask about transgender identification in 2014. So, again, you know, we've only got seven years of data, but still, you can see. A really big change. So, among 18 to 26 year olds, the percentage who identified as transgender used to be about half of a percent. And then in 2021, it was almost two and a half percent. Mm. So, it more than quadrupled. Mm-hmm. And what's particularly striking about this graph in the book, it's figure 6.5 for anybody who managed to, uh, to get a hold of it. Is that there's very little change among people ages 27 and older, so this change is really concentrated among among young adults, and it is true we can see in this in this same survey, yes, that most of that change is among those um, identified female at birth, so that's where you're seeing more uh, more of the change. And you, you could also see that in another survey among those who identify as non-binary. That's also a majority of those are, are those um, who began as female. So there is data to, you know, to back up Mm -hmm. um, some of this, some of this discussion. Um, What is, you know, more mysterious, just like with, with sexual orientation changing as well is the why question. And greater acceptance certainly has to be considered but you know the same question comes up if it was just greater acceptance then why would we see such a huge change for young adults and very little for those who are older Mm -hmm. so it could be an interaction that with greater acceptance then more people may feel that they can identify as trans and if they're younger it's perhaps easier, well, not probably not, probably never easy per se, yeah. but to maybe rejigger your life than it would be if you're older.
0: That, that makes sense. I, I appreciate you engaging in a little uh, in a little speculation on that because I think that that that's actually seems to me a very plausible explanation. there's um, also wanted to, to look at how Gen Z looks at marriage and mm-hmm. children. Uh, mm-hmm. You say in the book there's some early signs that Gen Z might not just postpone marriage but not enter these relationships at all. Um, can you explain sort of what that means for the, the future of the family?
1: Yeah, so that's, that is what shows up in these big surveys, so like the one of high school seniors is probably the most relevant here, that when they're asked about uh, marriage or even just you know committed relationships, in the last five to 10 years, we see a lot more high school seniors saying, I don't know if I wanna do that. Um, you can see that with having children As well, the same thing, the percentage of high school seniors who say that they are likely to have kids was very high and very stable from 1976 until about 2012 or 2013. And then it started to decline. And that's especially striking because it means that that number stayed stable and high for millennials. And that's the childbearing group right now. And birth rates are very low. So they said they wanted kids in high school and then they didn't end up having kids gen z isn't even saying they want kids when they're 18.
0: yeah i wonder i wonder what uh what what the if if that trend continues what the next generation might think about marriage and family and things like that that uh, uh at least on the surface that doesn't seem to bode well for the future of the family
1: Certainly for the idea of um, two parents raising children together, that um, has certainly become less popular as an expectation and a choice among Gen Z.
0: Would the notion of single parent single parent by choice uh, be something you might see that would take its place?
1: Potentially, you know, given that, um, even with the decline, the numbers say they want children is still fairly high. But then there's more skepticism around relationships and marriage. That is certainly a possibility.
0: Yeah, this uh, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, now it you know we hear a lot of discussion about mental health crises among Gen Z. Mm-hmm. How we you know on a on a scale of one to ten, ten being worst. How serious do you think this is? Uh, And what role, particularly, what role does social media play in this?
1: I think we're at a 9 or 10 when you look at the statistics. So clinical-level depression, so that really requires treatment that's very serious, that has doubled among teens. Uh, It's not 20%. Among teens, and this is a screening survey. We're not talking about people who go to a doctor's office mm-hmm. or get a diagnosis. you know it's not due to being more willing to admit or seek help or anything like that. Um, the suicide rate is at very, very high levels among teens. Um, the rate of emergency room admissions for self-harm behaviors mm. that is quadrupled among 10 to 14 year old girls. Oh my. I mean, think about that age group. You know, we're we're thinking about fifth graders, sixth graders, oh. and seventh graders, and they're four times as many are being admitted to the hospital for things like cutting or taking pills. I mean, it's, we have to take this extremely seriously. Oh, that's,
0: that's heartbreaking to think about.
1: It, it, it absolutely is. Um, you know, and... I mean, I think it should be heartbreaking and concerning for everyone, um, without a doubt. Uh, but I, I think it especially hurts, you know, when you're a parent. And I, I have I have three kids; they're 16, 13, and 11. Mm. So, you know, just thinking about what those kids are going through, um, and then what their parents are going through. I mean, it, it really is heartbreaking. There's not you can't even really express in words just how terrible and horrible it is. Um, so, yeah, you know, we and we we know um, that this is happening and we know it's not just anything. We, we can't dismiss it, as some have tried to do by saying, oh, it's just they're more willing to admit to problems. Well, if that was the case and we wouldn't see any changes in objectively measured self-harm or things like suicide, and unfortunately we do, so I think the, uh, the time for dismissing this was over years ago and people are still trying to do that, which is very frustrating. So then the question is, what caused it? And I do think that you can make a pretty strong case for the changes in technology. So these, these changes started to happen in the early 2010s. So depression started to increase around 2012, for example. That happens to be the first year the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's also around that same time that social media use became much more common among high school students, daily social media use. And social media just kind of changed over that, around that time. Um, Facebook bought Instagram and social media became much more visual and the algorithms changed, became much more sophisticated. Plus that coincided with teens spending a lot less time with each other in person interacting with each other face to face teens also started to spend less time sleeping around that time. So you put that together, more time online, less time with friends in person, less time sleeping. Is it really that surprising that we got a big uptick in mental health issues? Cause that's a terrible formula for mental yeah, health.
0: That, sound, that sounds like a pretty toxic brew to me. Exactly. Uh, uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely something to keep, keep our eyes on in the future. Um, because that's you know that that's very distressing. Um, yes, you know, and you know my kids are a little older than yours, um, but if I had if I had middle school and high school age kids, that'd be the stuff that'd be keeping me up at night. Um,
1: and you know, I always uh, I have to um, say something in this point to you that it, that even though I study this stuff, it's still a struggle. That if you're a parent and you have kids in this age group and you're struggling with the with technology use, you are not alone. Even yeah. parents who lock stuff down as much as possible, which is what I try to do, we still struggle with it. Because it 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 is everywhere. And I don't and don't take that, you should not give up. I mean, I've I've heard a lot of right. people say, Oh, it's everywhere, so you may you know you might as well not do anything. Like, are you kidding me? No. You can still do things, but it is, it is very difficult because it is the way that kids tend to relate to each other now. Um, the good news is they don't have to be on social media. And social media is the most toxic of the brew. So they can do other things. They can call each other, for example, or text. You don't have to do it through social media. Um, but it's stuff like my kids have school laptops and the school laptops have YouTube on it. And there's no way to put parental controls on a school laptop. So, you know.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: we're, all in, we're all in this battle and um, a lot of times it feels like we're losing.
0: Yeah, that raises a whole another set of questions that maybe we'll have time for another time. Um, now, a couple more questions for you. You have a section at the end of the book entitled The Future of Religion. What do you think that future is?
1: Well, um, I think it might very well look different from what we have now. That we're gonna have to you know reconsider the way the way this um the religious landscape looks and you know i have additional graphs in there just showing some of the changes um you know overall i think this trend is going to continue that there's going to be a smaller number a smaller population of the u.s population who is religious Uh, I think we've already seen this lead to generational misunderstandings. Often the generational break is between Gen X and millennials. So Gen Xers and Mm -hmm. boomers on on one side, even though I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, we don't have a ton in common with boomers, but um, at least from this picture that uh, politically and religiously, the two generations get grouped together um, kind of across a divide for millennials and Gen Z. so there's there's going to be you know de- declining congregations, um, but just, you know on a more hopeful note, um, I, I I do think that there are you know opportunities for religious organizations to fill a real gap that's there in modern life in terms of social interaction and in terms of meaning.
0: Gene, this is all this has all been. Super insightful. So appreciate your work. And I want to commend to our listeners your book, Generations, uh, Gene Twangy, uh, the real difference between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate the, uh, just the, the insightful way you brought the data to bear on these generational shifts and what that means for culture, for religious life, Uh, and for Christian institutions in general. Thank you. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. If you'd like to submit comments, ask questions, make suggestions on issues you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to consider, email us at thinkbiblically at biola.edu. That's thinkbiblically at biola.edu. Enjoy today's conversation. Give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.